Good morning. We're glad that you're joining us today by, I'm sure, a whole variety of different amazing technical marvels, whether it's your phone or your iPad or your computer. We're delighted that you're able to join us. I just wanted to make one announcement, really of a general nature. Uh, many of you, of course, will be aware that the governor has announced that we're going to begin winding down the lockdown uh, requirements in the coming weeks. I think May the 1st will be the beginning of our, of our release, as it were. But that may well cause a great deal of anxiety in the hearts and minds of many of the people that you know, and may actually increase levels of frustration and fear in those that you've been seeking to minister to over these last weeks and months. The prayer text hotline um, that we've made available, I think has been tremendously helpful for many people. Sue McCoy has been heading up the care team, as you know, for a considerable time and has had uh, really great uh, opportunities and great breakthroughs in these, in these last days and weeks. We've seen all kinds of things being coordinated through the care ministry. There's been the, there's been the prayer buddy um, uh, opportunity through people calling one another. And this particular facility is, I think, enormously helpful. If you or anyone else would like prayer, then the number to call is 937-365-9937. I'll just say that again. 937-365-9937. And if you text that number and put your prayer request there and leave your name then someone will call you back. If you don't leave your name, then we won't call you back. We'll just uh, add your prayers to the prayers of many others. But if you leave your name, we'll call you back and uh, we'll take that name to be an indicator that you'd like us to call back. So we'll certainly do that and we'll be glad to be able to minister to you in that way. Now, of course, we've had all of the celebrations, though I'm sure somewhat muted, uh, in our lockdown. We've had all of the celebrations of Easter uh, just last week. And now we're back into our study of Luke again. We're back on the road with Jesus, learning what it means to be a disciple and learning what it means to follow him on a daily basis. So here in chapter 14, we see Jesus being invited into the home of a Pharisee. And clearly, though he's been invited in as an equal with everyone else, those that have invited him and those others who are from the party of the Pharisees are watching him carefully in case he does something that they consider to be illegal or wrong. He goes ahead and does exactly what they perhaps expect him to do. He breaks the Sabbath by healing a man from dropsy. And then he shares a parable, a parable of the kingdom, a parable of the fulfillment, the culmination, the consummation of the kingdom when God will 
call to his banqueting hall all those who have heard the call, all those who have recognized the Lord Jesus, all those who have committed themselves to the Lord Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so we have this parable of the great banquet. And so in many ways, the beginning of chapter 14 is all about invitations. Jesus being invited into the home of a Pharisee. Jesus inviting a man forward that he might be healed. Jesus then giving a parable of invitation where at the great banquet, the one who is giving the banquet is so concerned that his house will not be full that he sends his servants out into the highways and byways to compel, to compel as many who will come into the banquet to come. So we have all of that in the beginning of the chapter, but none of that is what I sense the Lord is calling us to really study this week. Rather, rather than looking at the invitation section of this chapter, we're going to look at the implication section of this chapter. There's an invitation section and there's an implication, the implications of following Jesus. Let me read to you from verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, his mother, his wife, and his children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Here at the beginning of what it is that Jesus is saying, he's, he's pausing in, is in his journey. It's a kind of an interlude moment. He's pausing and he's turning to the crowd and he's using what the crowd at the time would have been familiar with as they listened to the rabbis. What it's called is rabbinic hyperbole. Rabbinic hyperbole. In other words, the rabbis were familiar with the idea of using extraordinary language that was intended to arrest the attention of the audience. Jesus here speaks about hating fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and children and your own life. Of course, hate is not in any sense an agenda for a disciple of Jesus. He's using this expression as a way to capture our minds, to, to gather our attention so that we listen carefully to what it is that he's going to say next. Because what he says next has implications for every follower of Jesus. The code, the, the values of the kingdom have always been love and they always will be love. But Jesus wants us to wake up. It's almost as though he's, he's slapped us across the face. It's almost as though he's thrown a bucket of cold water over us. He wants us not to assume just because we've been putting one foot in front of the other, that everything will continue as normal. Surely, our experiences over these last weeks have given us an understanding that life 
as we would call normal is not something that we can rely on as a reality every day. Jesus wants our attention. And then he says these extraordinary words. In a way, it's a continuation of the rabbinic hyperbole because he's using such a graphic metaphor that even the people that heard him for the first time would know that this is not a literal cross that he's speaking about, certainly in the case of the vast majority of the crowd that's listening to him. Interestingly, Peter, the leader of the disciples, would himself be crucified outside of the city of Rome, upside down many years later. But in general terms, when he speaks about a disciple carrying a cross, he's using metaphorical language. He's using rabbinic hyperbole. He's wanting to show us something that is enormously important about the implications of being a disciple. He wants us to understand that unless we give up everything, it's going to be really, really difficult for us to receive all that he wants to pour out upon us as the disciples that, of course, he loves, that he adores, that he wants to give grace to more and more. So let's, let's dive into this a little bit. Let's, let's dig into what it is that Jesus is wanting to say. I remember, and I think I've mentioned it before in passing, I remember as a young pastor working in the inner city of London in really the poorest community at the time of that city, the Lord saying to me really in unequivocal terms that he wanted me to carry my cross. And of course, because I knew that that Jesus in these passages where he speaks about this is using this metaphor, I was assuming that the Lord was speaking to me in metaphorical language. And so I kept on praying and saying, well, Lord, what ways do you want me to carry my cross? And eventually I came to the realization that the Lord wanted me to walk around the community in which our church was set, carrying a cross that was large enough for me, as tall as I am, to be crucified on. So I constructed that cross and carried it around our community every day for nine months during the lunch hour time. And I would stand on the street corner holding that cross and preach to the people in their homes or in the streets or in the shops that were passing. And people have often asked me, what did it feel like? And the answer to that is it felt like dying every day. I think that because the Lord knows me so well, he knew that I had to be arrested in my usual everyday practical expression of following him. And I needed to really embrace something that would take me outside of my comfort zone, outside of the usual conditions of being a church leader. It took a lot of people in the congregation outside of their comfort zone as well. 
But we saw amazing things during those times because I was unable to be reliant upon my own gifts, my own resources, my own abilities. And I had to function very much more out of the resources that only God is able to supply when you have exhausted your own. That idea of dying to self is something that, of course, is riven throughout the whole of the New Testament, but very rarely do we have a chance to to really consider what it might mean. But today, I hope, we'll have that opportunity. We've got a video clip now that I want you to look at. It's one of the it's one of the video clips that I've often thought about as I, as I go back thinking about this amazing story. It's, a, it's the TV series, uh, The Band of Brothers. And um, the group of guys have arrived during the D-Day landings and they now have to fight their way, of course, towards the gates of Berlin. And it's going to be a terrible time for all of them. And how will they mentally, as it were, prepare themselves for the journey ahead? I'm going to ask the team to run the video and then we'll go on from there. Lieutenant. Sir, when I landed on D-Day, I found myself in a ditch all by myself. I fell asleep. I think it was it was air sickness pills they gave us. When I woke up, I didn't really try to find my unit to fight. I just I just kind of stayed put. What's your name, Trooper? Blasher, Albert Bly. You know why you hid in that ditch, Blythe? I was scared. We're all scared. You hid in that ditch because you think there's still hope. But Blythe, the only hope you have is to accept the fact that you're already dead. And the sooner you accept that, the sooner you'll be able to function as a soldier is supposed to function. Without mercy, without compassion, without remorse. All war depends upon it. All war depends on it. You have to come to the point that you're already dead. And then you can function as a soldier. This is what Jesus goes on to say as he seeks to express and articulate to his disciples what it means to actually carry your cross. Listen to these words. I'm reading from verse 28 of of Luke chapter 14. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, 
This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first down, first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. In the same way, says Jesus in verse 33, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus takes this this picture of a disciple carrying a cross. There's only one destination for a person carrying a cross. It is the inevitable death that is at the end of that journey. Jesus is saying, you have to consider yourself already to be dead. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to continue this journey. And the way that you do that, in the way, in the way that you do that, is that you is that you assess your life, you audit your life, you look at your life in these two ways. And then he gives these two little mini parables. A man who's building a tower, he has to sit down and he has to look at the resources that he has available. Does he have enough provision? And is he able to persevere to the end of the project? He looks at his resources and he decides at that point that he has all of the provision necessary not only to build the foundation but to complete the task until it's, it's absolutely finished. He has all that he needs. Jesus at the end in verse 33 says, in the same way, if any of you wants to be my disciple, has to give up everything. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, look, you're wanting to be a disciple. You're wanting to build a different kind of life. You're wanting to live a different kind of way. You were living one way, and now you're sensing a call to live another way. But you can't do it in your own strength. You can't do it with your own provisions. You can't do it with your own resources. So sit down and come to a clear mind about it. You will fail in the project. You will inevitably come short of being able to finish the task of being my disciple. Yes, It will be a humiliating end for the person who attempts to follow me using the resources that they think they have because you can't do it with your own resources. This is something that Jesus will do time and again and we've looked at it in the past. One of the things that Jesus will do is to bring us to a point of recognition, to a point not only of recognition, but of desperation. We are compelled, 
to follow Jesus. We're desperate to be close to him. We want to follow in his footsteps. But the reality is, when we assess our capacity to do that, we realize that we can't. And so we choose to let go of all of our pretense to our own capacity and turn and embrace his. The provision we need to be a disciple is not how intelligent you are. It's not how nice a person you are. It's not whether other people think that you're great. It's not your charisma. It's not your character. It's his capacity to be able to give you all of the provision for the journey and all of the grace so that you persevere to the end. Jesus goes on from the metaphor, the picture, the parable of the man building the tower to a king who is needing to fight a battle. All disciples know that being a follower of Jesus is not simply about building. Sometimes it's about fighting. Of course, there are those who will oppose us. The enemy and all of his minions reigned against us. And left to our own resources, we will be overwhelmed by our enemy. Make no mistake. If you choose to fight the devil and all of his subordinates in your strength you will be overwhelmed and swept away what makes us any different from all of the generations of humanity up to this point we are not able to overcome the evil that is in the world and so when we audit our resources we of course realize with desperation that we cannot even fight, never mind win. So what are we to do? We're to do precisely what Jesus always instructs us to do. Realize that you have to give up everything. And why, why are we giving up everything? Jesus says it again, doesn't he? Over and over again, he says it here, he says it in other portions and parts of the gospel. It's so obvious that we need to give up. Why? Because unless our hands are empty, we can't receive what it is that he wants to give us. The resources that we need are the resources that he's able to supply. But if we hold on to our own resources, then our hands will be full of resources that will be quickly depleted and incapable of carrying us through to the conclusion. If we hang on to the resources that we believe will help us in the battle and those resources are our own, then we will inevitably lose because the resources that we have for the battle at hand are not sufficient for the day. What we need to do is to empty our hands of our resources and allow God 
to pour out the abundant supply of his resources that will more than supply us for the journey and for the victory that we need to win. In Romans 5, a passage that I've been studying with a group of pastors from all around the country who joined me in a huddle on a Thursday afternoon, it says that where sin abounds, grace, and then there's this word that's really difficult to 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 translate into English, grace superabounds. Where there is an opposition that seems unassailable, impossible to overcome, when we give up attempting in our own resources to, to somehow solve that insoluble problem, God is able with a superabundance of grace and provision to supply us with more than we need. I'm old enough to remember the first Gulf War when General Schwarzkopf would speak about overwhelming superiority. He knew and every other commander in the field has known that unless you're going to rely on luck or the native wit of the field commanders, the best way to prepare for victory is to have overwhelming superiority in resources. And that's what he went for. And people kept on asking him, why aren't you doing it? He said, because we haven't got enough supplies. And the supplies were so overwhelmingly larger than the enemy that he faced, there was, there was no possibility that the enemy was ever going to be able to stand in the, in the, in the face of such, such an incredible superiority. But that was his plan. And that's the plan of God. He intends through you to bring overwhelming superiority to the field of battle. Where are you battling today? Where are you struggling? Where are you wrestling within? Which temptations or trials are are manifesting as you're sequestered and, and locked away in your homes? What thoughts do you battle in the night hours? Are you going to use your own resources and find yourself continually spiraling around a kind of elongated defeat? Or will you find yourself giving up on such strategies and declaring before the Lord that you are giving up all of these things and placing them into his hands? and finding the means by which his grace and his superabundant provision will give you victory. You see, here is another of those little couplets within this remarkable passage. This passage is about invitation and implication. This passage is about provision and perseverance. 
But it's also about something else as well. It's about how a victim becomes a victor. How does a victim become a victor? You see, the people that were listening to Jesus on that first occasion, and they heard him describe what it means to be a disciple carrying a cross, they heard that Jesus wanted them to function as a victim. That they were going to be victims of a cruel and and terrible death. The fact is, of course, that it was only he that that would have such the cruel and terrible death. I just need a little drink. Excuse me a second. But how were they supposed to understand their life? Were they supposed to bump around from one state of victimhood to the next? Were they supposed to exist from one place of defeat and depression and just find themselves falling into the next one? Or was there something else that Jesus was trying to reveal? What was it that he was trying to say? What he was trying to say was this. If you will release from your grip everything that you're holding on to, just like the hands are released in death and are unable to hold on to anything after death. If you will give these things up in a way that is a conscious decision on your part to live a life that says, I no longer hold on to the conditions and resources of my own life. If you'll do that, then you'll not live as a victim. You'll reign as a victor, as more than a conqueror. You will in these things, says Paul, reign in life. Not reign one day after death, but reign in life. And so here, as we consider the lockdown being lifted, is the question for each of us. And it's a question of personal revival. And it's a question of personal transformation. What is it that God has been trying to achieve in our lives through this most terrible of circumstances, this global pandemic? Whatever it is, it always starts inside and then manifests itself in our outer life and behavior. So what would it be? Well, surely it would be the disposition that means that we're no longer victims but now function as victors. That we no longer find ourselves living with a mindset of scarcity but but functioning with a superabundance of God's resources. 
Surely, if God wants to achieve anything in his children, it is the mindset of being children of a king who has more than we could ever need to complete the journey and win every battle. This is the time for us to consider the reviving work of God in our hearts. When we give up on our resources and we find ourselves with empty hands to receive his superabundance of provision. Provision for the journey and provision for the fight. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word to us, a light to our path, a lamp to our feet. Lord, through these dark days, you have spoken to us clearly, illuminated our lives. And Lord, you've spoken to many within our company of your desire to revive our hearts. Lord, I pray that as we surrender afresh our lives, our ideas, our plans for how it is that we can live our life, as we surrender these things into your hands, Lord, we pray that we would discover provision beyond our own. Perseverance that is so far exceeding our experience that it changes the way that we expect the future to unfold. And Lord, may it be that wherever we find ourselves tending toward the mentality of the victim, that you, Lord, by your abundance of grace, would cause us to live the life of a victor. And we pray it, Jesus, in your name and for your glory and for the extension of your glorious kingdom through us. And all God's people say, amen. Bless you. We're praying that we'll be allowed to gather here again, but we're so glad that we're able to gather in the mornings for prayer at 8.30. Just check on the website for the Zoom account that you can that you can uh, log into. And we're so glad that we're able to connect with our house churches and with our fellowships across the church. Bless you this day, and we'll be seeing you very soon, and hopefully in the flesh very soon as well. God bless.